Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. Today we examine Kant's notions of aesthetic ideas and genius in order to gauge what some would regard as the pomposity of progressive rock and others would see as its finest quality. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. simple enough question. Is genius a useful category any longer? Was it ever a useful category? What do we mean when we call somebody a genius or some concept a genius for that matter? Isn't it just kind of a way of saying that we're particularly enamored of someone's work or, or even someone's being? Is it a kind of cult of the superhuman? The idea that some people can just achieve more than others and therefore it kind of lets us off the hook. Well, maybe I'd be more important to the world if I were a genius, but I'm not. I'm just a regular Joe. Or is it a way of mythicizing uh, the creativity in the individual? Marjorie Garber, in her book Loaded Words, suggests something that I find kind of interesting. She says that as history progresses and individuals have less and less efficacy in the world, We've come to glamorize the notion of genius, that in a way it, it, it preserves an aura of the individual when really the individual seems to not have much of an impact any longer. And she feels that by now the category of genius has become more and more entrenched. Right? Certainly there are plenty of people who, like I might be suggesting now, dismiss the notion of genius say well you know it's it's really just a way of saying it's a fancier way of saying well i like this right and as garber points out i mean just about anyone now can be a genius or any type of person right she spends a lot of time on football coaches right and quotes somebody saying is a football coach someone that walks up and down a football field shouting orders is that really the type of person we want to call a genius of course the notion of genius originally seems to have applied to creative types. The notion of a scientific genius doesn't come along until later, roughly Einstein and, Ed and I guess before that, uh, slightly before that, Edison, right? This idea of uh, the, the, the instant of inspiration. You could go back much further, I suppose, with the, the Eureka moment, right? Archimedes. Uh, this idea that you have this flash of insight and that that's what genius is. It's beyond thinking in our normal sense of thinking where we, we follow one thought by another and slowly, arduously make our way toward a conclusion, but rather there's a kind of illumination. And so as Garber points out, now all sorts of people can be a genius, football coaches, scientists, the inventor of Velcro. To some extent, I would say, genius has always served as a kind of black box. Right? It's an explanatory device for the production of what we regard as great work that in the end really explains nothing. And yet, like we'll see is the case with Kant, I don't necessarily want to give up the notion of genius so readily. Or maybe part of me does, but part of me doesn't. Because I think we're looking for something real when we're looking for genius. I'm just not sure that genius is always the right way 
or the, the right place to look for it. But what we're looking to understand is how it is that creativity happens. If creativity seems to happen in a flash, right? Or another way of looking at it might be that you're working and working, but then there's that, that flash of illumination where it all makes sense. We've had all had these moments, I, I, I would think, right? Because it's a fundamental human aspect or quality to be creative. Not just artists are creative. I, I, I would hope you agree with that statement. So perhaps the problem with genius is that we separate out those that are genius from those that are not genius. And of course, it only got worse with IQ tests, right? Garber talks about this as well, the idea of quantitatively measuring genius. And then there were studies done where people with a quote-unquote genius IQ, uh, they, they were sort of followed out throughout their, their lives to see how they developed. And none of them, none of that group of, of, of people who had genius IQs that were being studied, of course there were many others, uh, but none of them won a Pulitzer, none of them won a Nobel Prize, right? Uh, they might have had successful lives, doctors and lawyers and such, but did they lead genius lives? And what does that even mean? What does that look like? Now, progressive rock has a kind of issue with genius because many of the uh, people involved in progressive rock, many of the musicians involved, thought of what they were doing as raising tastes, as, as, as uh, creating a kind of ennobling effect within rock music. Not all of them felt this way, obviously. And some people, like David Gilmore of Pink Floyd and, and at times at least Robert Fripp of, uh, of King Crimson, they looked disparagingly at people who did think that this is what they were up to. But then you have someone like Carl Palmer of, of uh, ELP, of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who was quite offended by some of the reviews, and we'll talk about some of them in a moment, that Lester Bangs wrote about that group and about progressive rock in general. And he wrote an open letter to Lester Bangs, the, the critic uh, for Rolling Stone and other, other venues. Um, and he, in it, Palmer wrote, quote, we hope, if anything, we're encouraging the kids to listen to music that has more quality, end quote. Of course, this is just the kind of thing that would outrage Bangs, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. But you can see, even in this short quotation, that there's this sense of encouraging your listeners to do something. That's already a kind of pedagogical uh, motive, Right. The idea usually of entertainment, of rock music, isn't to educate, it isn't to uplift taste or, or moral standing or whatever else, right? Uh, but rather to entertain, to help pass the time. So already there's this notion that what they're up to is somehow different from the normal workings of entertainment. And that what they're doing, and notice the use of the word kids, too, that we're, we're if anything, we're hoping to, to encourage the kids to listen to music that has more quality. So that helps to give you the sense that there's a pedagogical element there, right? And this elusive category of quality, what makes this music more quality? And notice they don't say listen to our music that has more quality. What Palmer says is listen to music that has more quality. So it might be that he's suggesting that their music, the music of ELP, especially their, as we talked about in the last episode, their arrangements of classical music might serve as a kind of bridge 
to listen to the classical musicians themselves. Now, if that's the case, of course, their first album presents the problem that they didn't credit Bartok or Janacek. And so how direct of a conduit can we really see their music and their arrangements as being to the world of contemporary classical music? The most famous statement that's often pilloried in criticism as being the, the height of pretension and gall is Gentle Giant, the liner notes for acquiring the taste, which uh, probably was written not by any member of Gentle Giant directly, but by their producer, um, who does play an instrument and plays on, on the album as well, but not an official member of the band. At any rate, the liner notes say this, quote, it is our goal. So again, this goal, right? Just like Palmer said, we hope. So I'll read the whole thing this time. Quote, it is our goal to expand the frontiers of contemporary music at the risk of being very unpopular. We have recorded each composition with the one thought that it should be unique, adventurous, and fascinating. It has taken every shred of our combined musical and technical knowledge to achieve this. From the outset, we have abandoned all preconceived notions on blatant commercialism. Instead, we hope to give you something far more substantial and fulfilling. All you need to do is sit back and acquire the taste, end quote. So notice the end there, acquiring the taste. And the, the title of the album, I think, is, is uh, telling, right? Uh, the taste, especially elevated taste, isn't something you're born with. It's something you acquire. It takes devotion. It takes work. And so if you're going to uh, acquire this taste, then you better sit down and pay attention. Right? So again, let's go through this quotation somewhat carefully. Right? So they're, they're postulating a goal. Our goal is not merely to entertain you. It's to expand the frontiers. And notice, it's not, it's not just the frontiers of rock music. It's the frontiers of contemporary music. So they're putting themselves in the context of modernism. Not modern jazz or modern classical music or modern rock, but all of it. Modern music as such, modernist music, self-consciously modern music, not just music that happens to be contemporary, but music that is self-consciously so. And they're going to do this at the risk of being very unpopular, they say, that it doesn't matter if they have a large audience. They have a kind of commitment and that they're asking you to have a kind of commitment in order to acquire the taste. And so they recorded each of the compositions, they say, with the thought of it being unique, adventurous, and fascinating. So notice that. Unique. That each artwork, and we're going to get back to this, although we've already seen it somewhat in Kant, but uh, that each artwork is a particular. It is not generalizable. This isn't just a rock song, nor is it a rock song that incorporates elements of contemporary music. Uh, when we're talking about the album Acquiring the Taste, there's a song on there that we'll talk about in a bit called The Black Cat. And The Black Cat presents its own standards for how one judges it. You don't judge it as a rock piece or a, a fusion piece or all the other categories you might use. You judge it as being the black cat, the one and only the black cat from Gentle Giants acquiring the taste. So each song is unique. Each song is adventurous. It's not predictable. It's experimental. Right? It's trying to do new things, and we're going to come back to this issue of the experimental uh, in, in, uh, later on. And then fascinating, right? It's supposed to capture your attention in the way that we've talked about with Kantian aesthetics. You fall into it. You've, you, if, you, if you're really aware of the beauty of the thing, you, there's a fallenness to it. You're not, you, you can't exactly choose to have an experience of the beautiful. It befalls you. Right? You find it fascinating. You're entranced. You're struck by wonder and awe. 
Notice that they say that in order to create this, to achieve this, they've combined their musical and technical knowledge, right? So they're coming at it in a thinking manner, as well as through their, their musical ability. And then they, they return to this idea of abandoning preconceived thoughts on blatant commercialism. They're not trying to sell. The commercialism is, is posited here as the enemy, that the real thing is artistic endeavor. And so they're looking to give you something more substantial and more fulfilling, that this is good for you. Now, to some extent, this is the bane of music appreciation classes. This is what, what I think far too often we do in music appreciation classes. We play all this music and pretend that it's good for the students, right? It's like, it's like having your vegetables. Like, yeah, you listen to whatever you want on your own, and that, that might be nice. It's sort of like uh, eating chips or whatever, but this is, this is the real food for thought. And you can see that progressive rock is presenting itself as the musical food for thought. And that's going to bother a lot of people. Right? Because of smacks of pretension. Lester Bangs, for instance, referred to, uh, to progressive rock as the insidious befoulment of all that was gutter pure in rock. We're not going to read the whole uh, review. I just think that one line is revealing enough. That progressive rock is the insidious befoulment of all that was gutter pure in rock. Now think about that. Befoulment. Making foul. Making dirty. Making ugly and, and pointless making it into trash but what is it making into trash that which was gutter pure well what's in the gutter that which is dirty that which is befouled that that which is so so there's a a reversal here in bangs that's not at all atypical of of bangs's writing right he thinks of proper rock music as being inherently adolescent inherently grimy inherently dangerous inherently risky in the sense of it's not safe it's not it's not um it's not protected or or uh um underwritten by the the establishment it's it's inherently anti-establishment right i mean lester bangs is sort of the the godfather in many ways of modern rock criticism that that moment in the 60s and after where rock criticism was was about this kind of countercultural move and that's very much what he's saying so insidious, right? This creeping, sinister befoulment of all that was gutter pure. That the gutter aspect of rock is what is pure in it. It's a pure expression of adolescence. It's a pure expression of animal nature and so on. And certainly progressive rock is trying to not just be that. At times it might be also that. But the self-conscious cleverness of its formal constructions, of its harmonic uh, structures, of its uh, melodic devices and, and the exotic scales and so on. It's self-consciously presenting itself as a kind of art music, as something that is not gutter pure. Robert Criscow has something similar to say, although uh, in a way uh, more obviously insulting and, and I'd say uh, less charismatic. He writes in, in a very short review of uh, ELP, quote, these guys are as stupid as their most pretentious fans, end quote. So notice pretension and stupidity, right? That this attempt to make yourself bigger than you are, to make yourself more sophisticated than rock can really withstand, is a form of both pretentiousness and stupidity, right? Or perhaps in Chris Gow's mind, all pretentiousness is stupid, and there might be something to be said for that. But this idea that, that 
ambition in this manner of ambition is automatically stupid and pretentious. It might say as much about Chris Gell as it does about progressive rock. Now, other writers who are more open to uh, progressive rock still indulge in some of these same notions of, of genius and pretension, right? So, for instance, Bill Martin, in his really interesting book, Listening to the Future, suggests that prog prog rock is likely rock's first real, quote, music of ideas. Now, I don't, I don't want to go that far. I think that music inherently deals with ideas. Even the simplest uh, early rock and roll deals with ideas. Um, but prog rock is sort of self-consciously and in a very open manner. It's asking you not to engage with it as music and the ideas kind of creep in. It's asking you to engage with it as a platform for ideas, although often obscure and rather strange ideas, not clear ideas. And that'll be important when we turn to Kant and the whole notion of the aesthetic idea. Martin also writes that, quote, great art engages in the creation of worlds. And he suggests that this is particularly true of prog rock. Now that quotation, it seems to me, is probably, although I don't know for certain, an adaptation of the famous line by Gustav Mahler that every symphony that he wrote was a world unto itself. And this is a very Kantian idea, that each work of art creates a world. Think about that for a minute. It's not that it's just creating an object. It's creating a world. A world is a set of objects in relation to each other and a set of relationships among those objects, right? A world is an overarching environment where some things conflict, some things cohere, where uh, you can get different views on a world, right? No one has a, a privileged view of the world. There is no, for us at least, for humans, a God's eye view where we can see it all at once, right? A world develops and unfolds. And so this idea that great art creates a world, I think is a really telling one in relationship to whether it be a Mahler symphony or a piece like Supper's Ready by, by Genesis, by a prog rock band. That what you're doing is you're not just creating a song, an object to be listened to, but you're creating a site for immersion, right? We're back to the intentional and the extensional. A, a site for you to move through, to journey through, the extensional notional form, but also in which to dwell, in which to allow the atmosphere of that world to show up to you in all of its contradictions, in all of its concinities, in all the ways that it relates and falls apart, just like any other world. And you move through, you navigate that world. And each time we go outside to our neighborhoods and walk around, we can do it in a different way. There are different experiences that will show up to us. And that rich notion of experience is part of what I think Martin is capturing here. And I, again, I don't think it's only true of progressive rock, but he does suggest that it's particularly true of progressive rock. And certainly it is self-consciously part of the endeavor of many of the progressive rock artists. So we have a couple of things to work with here. This idea of art creating a world of its own, a set of relationships that can be explored, and that it is somehow the genius that brings this about, whether it be Mahler or uh, Peter Gabriel. Right? Let's see if Kant can help us untether some of these ideas.
compared to other authors, so for example, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who claims that the genius is the creator that is constantly aflame and yet never consumed, Kant's take on genius is, well, kind of bland, right? Uh, the genius is that which brings the rule to art, and we have to figure out exactly what that means and how that works. Now, historically, genius is either something that one has or something that one is. And the switch from one to the other seems to have taken place right around the beginning of the 19th century. This shouldn't be surprising since the 19th century is the great era of the cult of the genius, right? So Mozart was said to have a genius for melody, whereas Beethoven was said to be a genius and all that entails. Somehow, what that meant, of course, is that uh, you're somehow beyond what other people are. By the end of the 19th century, you have characters like Oscar Wilde, uh, who supposedly said to a customs agent, I have nothing to declare but my genius, so the self-proclaimed genius. Now, Kant doesn't advocate either view. He doesn't think of genius as something you have, nor is it, is it something that you are. Genius for Kant is a kind of encounter between the subject and the world. Indeed, Kant is aware of the fact that he's using the term in a manner that doesn't really explain creation. So just like we said earlier that genius is a sort of explanatory device that explains nothing, Kant seems to be aware of that. And yet, he's trying to get at something that maybe can't be completely explained. And that's a common move in Kant, right? That there are some things that we're not going to be able to get a full grasp of, including moral law. And yet, we need to understand moral law in order to function. Well, in order to interact with aesthetic value, perhaps we need to understand ideas about genius, or at least not, not aesthetic value across the board, but certainly the aesthetic value of art. And this is interesting because Kant is often said to have an aesthetics of beauty of nature, and that art is secondary. But here we're starting to see a glimmer of a book that perhaps Kant could have written but didn't, A True Philosophy of Art. And actually, I think he did kind of write it. It's this part of the critique of, of judgment. It's this part where we're dealing with genius and aesthetic ideas, where he's turning to art proper, not just beauty as such, not the beauty of nature. So he defines genius as this, quote, the talent, natural gift, that gives the rule to art. Now, Kahn himself expresses doubts almost immediately. Whatever the case, he writes may be with this defini definition, and whether it is merely arbitrary or is adequate to the concept which is usually associated with the word genius or not, it can nevertheless already be proved at the outset that according to the meaning of the word assumed here, beautiful arts must necessarily be concerned, considered as arts of genius." End quote. So we need the concept, and yet we have no firm grasp on it, right? He has doubts about the concept, and yet he says it can already be shown that we need it in various ways, that the beautiful arts are the arts of genius. This brings it in league, as we said, with terms like freedom and morality. He then writes that genius is, quote, the inborn predispos predisposition of the mind through which nature gives the rule to art. Now, that's an interesting move that he's just made, right? And it was already in the earlier one. But before, he said it was the talent that gives the rule to art. But notice he said that talent is a natural gift. So now he's saying that this is the inborn predisposition of the mind through which nature gives the rule to art. 
Kant says something very interesting at one point in the Critique of Judgment. He says that when we look at beauty in nature, we're looking at it as though it's art. And when we look at art, we understand it as being a kind of expression or a reflection of the natural. So for him, beauty, the, the art beauty and nature beauty are very closely interrelated. And I think that that gets forgotten in a lot of commentary. So we need to think about this. How is it that nature gives the rule to art? Now, remember that aesthetic judgment relies upon an indeterminate concept. We've dealt with this in previous episodes, which we said was a contradiction in terms, because a concept in the strong sense, the concept of the understanding, is meant to be determinate, right? When, when I see this fuzzy creature and I recognize it as a squirrel, I've categorized that thing as a squirrel. It's determined. I've determined what it is. I've sub subsumed the uh, particular that I, am, I have a sensory experience of. I've subsumed that within the concept of squirrel. So we need a concept, he suggests, especially for art as opposed to the beautiful nature, because otherwise it would seem to lack purposiveness, right? There's an aspect of a concept that gives it purpose. But when, when I understand that something is a squirrel, I understand a lot of things about its squirrelhood. Right? It's way of being. If I understand something, let's take a different example. If I understand something as an oak sapling, then part of what I understand about it is that it has the potential, and all things being equal, will eventually grow into being a full-blown oak. Right? I understand a sense of purposiveness to it, of where, where it's heading, what it's doing. Right? And remember that art has, it, 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 it exemplifies purposiveness without purpose, without a stated or a clear or a single purpose. So it seems purposive in some way, right? Now we get the sense in most art that something was being attempted and achieved, right? We don't think that it was merely by chance. Even things that seem kind of happenstantial, if that's a word. Uh, think about, about Marcel Duchamp, right? And uh, his sculpture that just has a, uh, a stool with a bicycle tire, a bicycle wheel, an apparatus sort of shoved in the midst of it, right? Um, there's something random about that. But when we see it, we don't think that, oh, there was some kind of accident that propelled the bicycle tire into the stool. We realize that it was done on purpose, that it has a kind of purposiveness to it. We might not understand what it means, and we're going to come back to this issue of meaning, but we get the sense that it wasn't just chance, that part of whatever it means is that something was being achieved. Even if we think, in the case of Marcel Duchamp, we might think that it's ridiculous or that it's postmodern and therefore playing with our concept of what art should be. Now, the problem is pinning down what that something is. What is it that was being attempted? Kant writes, quote, Every art presupposes rules which first lay the foundation by means of which a product that is called artistic is first represented as possible. Right? Then later he writes, quote, The concept of beautiful art does not allow the judgment concerning the beauty of its product to be derived from any sort of rule that has a concept for its determining ground and thus has as its ground a concept of how it is possible. So notice that sounds like a contradiction. Every art presupposes rules, right, by which what is called artistic is first represented as possible, and then uh, the concept of beautiful art does not allow the judgment concerning the beauty of its product to be derived from any sort of rule. So does it have rules? Or does it have, not, not, have no rules, right? So art and the artist can't give the rule to art because that would mean that there's a definite concept that can be pinned down. Then art is about perfection, as we talked about before. It's about getting the concept just right. 
So then what is it that rules do? What Kant declares is that, quote, since without a preceding rule, a product can never be called art, nature in the subject must give the rule to art, right? So the, the person, the artist, can't give the rule, so nature has to do it. So he's looking to avoid art that might be reduced to, would, to, to lacking a rule altogether, it might be reduced to what he calls original nonsense, right? Art seems to have a sense to it. It seems to have a purpose. So he's avoiding just random, you know, what surrealists will later experiment with, like automatic writing. That would probably not be an art for Kant. But at the same time, he craft, mere craft, is also not an art. If I'm just following rules, if I'm painting by numbers, paint by numbers is not art, for Kant at least. Right. Because the idea here is that you're not just following a set of prescribed rules to arrive at the thing. And yet it has to feel in some sense to be rule bound. I don't expect this to be clear. Right. It's not clear. It's not easy to think your way around. And I'm not going to promise that I'm going to get this quite right. I'm going to I'm going to make my best effort at it as we proceed here. So Kant feels that art properly brings forth a new way of relating to the world a new form of experience. And this is part of what's important about his notion of form, right? Form here is not just the outline of the thing. It's not just the surface qualities of the object. It's also a form of the way that our faculties work together, right? And therefore, a form of experience, a form of, of providing, as we'll see, a new experience. Art produces a feeling, quote, of the attunement of cognitive powers for a cognition in general. And it does this, Kant writes, because, quote, it concerns a pleasure or displeasure in the form of the object. So form is usually thought of as being more general than matter or content, right? When I'm talking about the form of the squirrel, the form of the squirrel applies to a whole bunch of squirrels, not just my pumpkin-eating squirrel that's in my yard, right? That's a, that's a specific squirrel with specific flesh, specific content, whereas his form as a squirrel is just general, a squirrel, right? Or think of mass-produced blocks. What makes them different isn't their shape, their form, what makes them different is their matter. But this is the form of this object. That's what Kant's concerned with here. Not form as a generalizable thing, but the form of this object. The art is its own world, as we've seen already, right? So it's something vaguely general in something palpably specific. Vaguely general because it seems to be rule-following. It seems to appeal to our notion of cognition in general. We don't think it's just nothing, and we don't think it's just random. It shows up to us as being something intentional. And yet, at the same time, we can't pin it down to just one meaning. And it's not generalizable. Whatever we know about the artwork, we only know about that artwork. And again, you can say, well, I know a lot of things about paintings, that there can be round paintings and there can be uh, rectangular paintings, and I can generalize about paintings in all sorts of ways. But those aren't aesthetic judgments. Those are judgments about the objecthood, the empirical objecthood of paintings, but they're not about the aesthetic qualities of them. Because in that sense, one Monet can't really be discussed in relation to other Monets. Each painting brings you into its own world, into its own conditions. So we judge an artwork on its own terms. This is part of what he meant when he says that, that, uh, that, that we're dealing in art with exemplarity. It's standing forth as the example of the only one of its kind. Now notice that Kant realigns some of what we already thought we knew about art and genius. 
Uh, many of us already thought of art as provoking thought and feeling. Moreover, we recognize that art requires a kind of undefined but still felt newness, right? If, if it's merely derivative, we don't usually valorize that as great art. When we find out that someone is a, a forger, the, the artfulness of what they've done diminishes for most people, maybe not everyone, right? And I think forgery would be something interesting to look at in a future episode. But we usually denigrate the derivative as somehow non-art. We also think of genius as the natural, as something that, you know, you don't develop genius, you're born with it in some way, and also unthinking, that it's this flash of illumination. It's not, we don't rigorously move our way toward illumination. It's the eureka moment, right? So Kant brings all of this together in a way. Genius is that way of thinking that goes beyond what it can do. It's thinking beyond itself for the artist, and it creates the possibility of open, endless thought for the recipient of art, for the person who's enjoying the artwork. And this is meant to be a new way of thinking, not one determined, but suggested by the singularity of the art object. Right? It's one that the art object is productive here of many possible meanings. That's why you can never say it all. You can't finish talking about it. Now, even Kant starts to move away from this a little bit because he then says this. He says, quote, genius can only provide rich material for the products of art. Its elaboration and form require talent that has been academically trained. Right? Now he seems to be dividing up genius as, as content, and, and that's the inspiration leads to content, whereas the form is, is through training. Right? And I, th I think this is often the case with Kant, that he's actually talking about form in many different ways, and he's always, not always clear what he's saying. That there is a formal element that genius provides. The aesthetic idea is not entirely content-driven that it has to do with the formal aspect as well. But there's also form in the sense of ABA and these, these shapes that were sonata form and so on that, that you can learn and that you can then uh, develop uh, from, from learning. And certainly that's going to be important to progressive rock, where the learned aspect of the music is part of what helps sell it for some people. Now let's turn to the notion of aesthetic idea, because what's at the heart of genius for Kant is that genius is productive of aesthetic ideas. Now, the notion of an aesthetic idea might at first seem like a, a kind of contradiction, right? First of all, ideas, as Kant first introduces them, are a special kind of concept. We have determinative concepts, and those subsume representations. So we see this creature we recognize as a squirrel, right? And thus the concept and the representation are adequated. I recognize this thing as a squirrel because it's adequate to my concept of a squirrel. It fits. But then you have rational ideas. And rational ideas, for Kant, in the second critique, those especially, but also already in the first critique, those are concepts of a sort, but they're regulative, right? They're not, they're not determinative concepts. They're regulative. And they're concepts for which no representation is adequate. I can't see freedom. I can't see morality and then say, here you go, this is, this is morality in the flesh. I see things that, that lead me to think about morality, that lead me to think about freedom, but freedom and morality always escape my full grasp as far as, as the sensibility is concerned. Right? Now, the aesthetic idea, then, is clearly in some ways related to the rational idea, but if the rational idea is where we have concepts for which no representation is adequate, the aesthetic idea flips that. He writes, quote, it occasions much thinking, though without it being possible for any determinate thought to be adequate to it. So it's, it creates thinking, but without the concepts being adequate to it. 
So the emphasis, whereas with, with reason and the regulative concept or the, the rational idea, the point was that our concepts outrun our experience. Our concept of freedom goes beyond what we can actually experience. Our concept of morality goes beyond what we can experience. The easy one is God, right? Uh, our concept of God goes beyond what we can experience because we are not adequate to an experience of God by definition. But with the aesthetic idea, it's the opposite. Our experience, the thing that we're representing as, a, as an intuition, the thing that shows up to us and that we work with as, as the particular, that outruns our ability to conceptualize. This leads us into an interesting area in Kant. Because then he says something, uh, actually just before the part I just read, he says something that I find interesting. He says, a poem can be quite pretty and elegant. It can appeal to taste but be without spirit, right? That's a paraphrase. That's not a quotation. But the idea is that, that the poem can be beautiful and yet not be art. And we recognize this thought, I think, many of us. Things that are merely beautiful. And they lack something. They lack substance. So Kant is, again, trying to account for an intuition that I think many of us have, a way of living with art that many of us uh, uh, practice, right? But that's not easy to pin down. So there can be an art that is beautiful and yet still fails as art. It's blandly beautiful. And he says that what it lacks is spirit. But what is spirit? He calls it the animating principle of the mind, right? The animating principle of the mind. So again, what we're dealing here with is thinking that goes beyond thought, the immeasurable expansion of a concept beyond its own limits, but at the same time deriving from the particularity of the aesthetic object. Uh, some authors turn to Hamlet, right, as a good example. Hamlet expands our view of family, and yet it derives from the details of this particular Hamlet's family's set of relationships. We, we see how art, then, is somehow deeply particular, and yet it does lead us into new ways of thinking, new ways of, of imagining things, right? The aesthetic idea comes into being, then, in the act of making the artwork, not preceding it. So it's, it, this is part of its genius quality. That you, it's not that you've planned it all out and there it is. That it's part of, part of what makes it art is it's coming into being. It's way of, of as Kant puts it, it's way of coming forth or stepping forth. Right? And so the expression of the artwork is bound up in the making of the artwork. It's not merely conceptual. Because what we are dealing with in the artwork, even in so-called conceptual art, is some object in front of us that unleashes the open possibility of the mind to create meaningfulness. And notice that, meaningfulness as such, meaning as such, not a meaning or a set of meanings. The meaning is that, in, in Kant's language, quote, which no language fully attains or can make intelligible, end quote. I can't pin it down. It's not a meaning, because I can't say what it is. I can't paraphrase it. And then you say, okay, well, then I don't need to bother with that film or that, that painting or that song, right? No concept, no group of concepts, no matter how refined, are going to be adequate to the work of art. And that's what the aesthetic idea does. So notice that the aesthetic idea, again, it is an idea where the representation, the intuition, the, the, the thing that appeals to our sensibility 
a representation of the thing that we are seeing or hearing, outruns, outpaces the concepts that we bring to it. It suggests open possibility. So it's not that the genius knows more than we do. It's that the genius sets forth new ways of thinking that are beyond what could have been thought previously. Now, if you think of meaning, pin down meanings, those are thoughts. They're thoughts that have been had, things that have been thought, and therefore they occupy a kind of pastness. But meaningfulness, the open possibility, the pointing toward what could be, that is future-oriented. It is by its very nature progressive, and therefore seems particularly suitable to something that we are calling progressive art, or progressive music, or progressive rock. So we've seen that in some ways, prog rock proclaims its own genius. It aspires to be a kind of art rock, and it, it has a pedagogical element to it, as Carl Palmer suggests to Lester Bangs. It's an attempt to provide something more fulfilling, more substantial, in the words of, of Gentle Giant from Acquiring the Taste. Right? By moving beyond predictable structures, including the use of odd meters, intriguing and, and often rather complex chord progressions and modulatory schemes, uh, rather uh, grand extensional forms, and so on, prog rock insists on being its own standard of judgment. When you hear a song like Supper's Ready, which we'll talk about a bit more in a moment by Genesis from the album Foxtrot, this doesn't sound like the it's it, it, first of all it's half an hour long so it's 10 times as long as the average pop song right and it, while it borrows elements from rock and pop music as well as folk music and uh, jazz to some extent and avant-garde music and a host of other genres uh, it doesn't sound like it's coming from any of those places exactly right and we'll talk about this more in just a moment so this idea of prog rock being the standard of its own judgment or, or creating its own standard of judgment is a big part of how prog rock aspires toward genius, specifically toward the Kantian notion 
of genius. This music is music that teaches you how to listen to it. And while I, I would see ELP's uh, adaptations of classical music as a kind of entree into that world creation, I think better examples would be the album Acquiring the Taste by uh, Gentle Giant, Close to the Edge, the, the sweet, or if that's what you want to call it, extended, extended song by Yes, right? Um, or Tales of Topographic Oceans, for that matter, a concept album. Uh, Tarkus by ELP, right? And then, of course, as I've already mentioned, Supper's Ready by Genesis from the Foxtrot album. These are songs that create an environment for you to inhabit, that lead you on a journey, as we'll see with Supper's Ready, from one section to the next sec section. Let's start with Acquiring the Taste, that 1971 album by Gentle Giant. We already saw the sort of pretensions toward pedagogy, toward uplifting the taste uh, that we found in the liner notes. And to some extent, I think those liner notes give this album a bad rap. To my mind, this is one of the great albums of the early 70s, uh, especially within the prog rock aesthetic. Certainly one can see in this album an attempt to stake out new territory by drawing on 20th century art music and twisted allusions to Baroque and classical music and church music and so on. Right? So it's, it is certainly an eclectic album and it's self-consciously trying to bring listeners into a variety of, of possible aural experiences. The advanced techniques and musical forms appear throughout acquiring the taste. You have whole tone scales, fugues, string quartets, contemporary art music timbres such as vibraphone coupled with strings and saxophone and recorder, right? And recorder might be an allusion to Baroque practice. Uh, you have these sea shanties and quotes from uh, Arnold Schoenberg, the 20th century uh, avant-garde composer uh, from his piece Pierre Lunaire and then also from Samuel Barber's Medea. Right? So these 20th century composers are being quoted and, and, and there are these references to various composers' styles as well within the album. Two songs in particular stick out to me that I'd like to talk about briefly. First is the opening track, Pantagruel's Nativity, which is obviously drawing from the famous French Renaissance pentology of novels Gargantua and Pantagruel by Francois Rabelais, right? This is a, uh, a very famous novel, uh, sort of depicts the carnivalesque, it draws in uh, mythological elements of these, these, these giants, right? The tune, the, the gentle giant tune, starts with a six-note motive, B-B-A-B-A-C, which is answered by a lower voice chromatic descent from G to E and then E to C-sharp. When the lower voice arrives at the C-sharp, the upper voice also executes a chromatic descent, but in a skipping fashion, B, G-sharp, G, B-flat, G, F-sharp, A. Right, so this sort of alternating third motion ultimately, um, and then the 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 C sharp uh, to B, um, accompanying the bass F sharp to E. Right, so this is the so we what we have is this move from that that little motive that six note motive B B A B A C. Right, and then it kind of chromatically drifts down to an E major chord. But the melody can hardly be considered tonal in any straightforward sense, even if you could say, well, it kind of cadences to E. But a great deal of the melodic material for the rest of this song will derive from this opening bit, 
So the the uh, the verse melody for the voice, uh, the sax parts that come in and out, trumpet, bass, and guitar will all derive from variations of this opening material, which is basically four bars of music. The grand exception is the contrasting middle of the song. So again, we can see the song in the broad sense as having ABA uh, features, right? As having an ABA structure, or better yet, a form overall. Um, the, the middle section here has a two-measure disjunct guitar riff in a mixed meter. The first measure is 5-4, the second meter measure is 6-4, right? And it's this thing that starts on B and immediately goes to B-flat. It's this kind of very, and it, it leaps up octaves and fifths and so on. It's this very disjunct uh, chromatic guitar riff. And this accompanies a polyphonic choral statement that swiftly shifts among con strongly contrasting chords. It goes from B to B-flat to B-flat minor, back to B, which is in this case ornamented by a triple suspension, then to G in first inversion, to C minor, to F in first inversion, to D minor, to D major. So notice that all of the chords, almost all the chords, are fairly closely related one to the next, with the exception of that opening. B to B flat is kind of a strange, maybe not so much in, in rock, right? This kind of Phrygian move. Um, but B flat to B flat minor, that's, that happens in pop music and classical music quite a bit, right? Especially 19th century classical music. Um, the move from B to G is a fairly typical chromatic move. G, of course, moving to C minor is just a dominant tonic relationship locally for C minor. C minor to F is, is you know, kind of Mixolydian-ish. Uh, and then F to D minor is very typical, major, relative, uh, major chord going to its relative minor. And then again, another parallel shift from D minor to D major. So each move, just about each move, seems reasonable enough, but the constant shifting creates a texture with no sure footing. But the most surprising conjunction comes near the end, when the opening motive is combined with a mi the mixed meter guitar riff. These things that seem to occupy different spaces, different forms of dwelling, right? That again, we have an ABA situation, an ABA form, and if the A section um, was, was meant to be uh, this uh, reined in or, or, or controlled by that six-note motive, right, and, and its immediate consequence. If everything was motivically connected to that, the B section seemed to be a respite from that. It had a new riff, that two-measure guitar riff, and then that, that really striking choral statement that gets repeated within it, right? It seemed to be obsessed with its own thing, this two-measure cycle that just kept repeating. But then... Something from the outside comes into it. Something from the A section comes into the B section. And it feels combinatorial. It feels like something that is meant to be taken notice of as something that shouldn't work. After all, we're talking about two different meters. We're talking about uh, two different contexts, harmonic contexts. And these things shouldn't be so readily combined, we might imagine. And so when you hear them, I imagine what's going on for Gentle Giant is that we are supposed to be surprised, shocked, fascinated, right? We're supposed to recognize uh, the advanced nature of this. In other words, we're supposed to follow the paradigm that they set forth in those liner notes. This is self-consciously clever and difficult music, and it's a music that kind of announces its own difficulty, which we're going to see again with Supper's Ready in Genesis. 
But before we leave Acquiring the Taste by Gentle Giant, let's look at one other song. One of those songs that I think is perhaps their most uh, uh, catchy tune from that album. The one that, that can probably, if you're going to listen to one tune to kind of reel you into the, the uh, universe of Gentle Giant, this might be it. And that's Black Cat. And it's another standout from that album. It opens with this slinky, alluring instrumental melody in 7-4, which, maybe because of the sound of the violin and then the wah-wah on the guitar, it navigates a kind of liminal space between funk, folk, and jazz music, but with just enough strange developmental digressions to remind one of concert music in the manner of, say, Stravinsky or George Antiel. The verse brings in just a touch of imitative counterpoint that flowers into this gorgeous harmonic effect that seems to end too abruptly. Every time the flow of the music seems secure, every time it seems like the music is flowing, and remember, it's not easy to make an odd meter like 7-4 flow, uh, but every time the music feels like it starts to flow, something interrupts it. Mu this is music that, uh, that calls attention to the intricacies of its being worked out. It's, it's bringing forth, in Kant's terms, the way in which it steps forward, right? The Herzu bringing uh, is, is, is what Kant talks about, right? The bringing forth. And that, that art is, in its essence, a new manner of bringing forth. And so it announces an insight that you couldn't have had before because it didn't exist before. So unlike what, what Deleuze will later say about art, that art uh, basically manufactures new affects, new ways of feeling, Kant would say, yes, it does that, but it also brings forward new ways of thinking, which Deleuze wanted to reserve for philosophy. But that's the intriguing thing about Kant. Kant does not think, and I'm sure some of you are thinking to yourself right now, oh, okay, so Kant is basically making music or art in general a kind of philosophy. That's specifically what he says he's not doing. This is a way of thinking that is not under the purview of philosophy. It's an exploratory thinking, a thinking of illumination, of lighting up, that has more to do with intuition and with, with, with sensibility, with the way in which we see things and the way things show up to us, than it does with the way we conceptualize things. And that's why it involves reflective judgment rather than uh, determinative or regulative judgment, right? Determinative judgment for things that are, are for determinate concepts, things that appeal to the understanding, seeing that this, that, that this thing in front of me is a squirrel. Regulative judgments for things that regulate my behavior, like morality and freedom, right? That I can't, I can't fully um, experience it as a representation, as an intuition. I can't fully represent it to myself. The concept outruns my experience. But then you have reflective judgment, where my experience outruns conceptuality. It outruns what I can take in. And it seems to me that's part of what's going on in this, in this song, The Black Cat. Because in some ways, it's a very familiar tune. It sounds like things we've heard before. It has fusion elements and funk elements. And it's, it's got a certain amount of the sexiness that we sometimes think of in rock in general. And yet it keeps breaking down. It keeps getting messed up in some way. right? It keeps getting interrupted. And then things become more marked in their complexity. After we turn to the opening instrumental melody, this string quartet fugue appears. Another example of imitative counterpoint, but this time marked as an obvious allusion to Baroque practice. The fugue, of course, being very typical of the Baroque. Think Bach. Right? The third voice of the fugue comes in just one beat too early, 
just uh, right just uh, again marking a kind of dysfunction within the adoptive process but it's also not something that Bach doesn't do Bach does that also and that's uh, where where the voice one voice it, it's usually the third because when the second voice comes in right it establishes uh, what what you should expect is the distance between one voice and the other and then the third or the fourth voice will follow suit third and the fourth voice will follow suit but sometimes Bach will have either the third or the fourth voice come in just a little early or a little late and that intrigues you it catches your attention it shows that Bach has control over the imitative relationship among the voices rather than it just being something that falls out of tonality he has control to move it around and that I think is what's going on with Gentle Giant as well it's just enough disruption just enough dysfunction to grab your attention to create wonder or fascination the fugue lasts only a few seconds. It, it, it would, if I played it for you, it would have been over long before I finished my discussion of it. Uh, and then it falls into this texture reminiscent of 1920s experimentalism, somewhere in the realm of, again, Stravinsky or maybe Henry Cowell or better yet, Kurt Weill. I hear a lot of Kurt Weill in acquiring the taste. A little later, the fugue returns. It threatens to give, once, uh, give way once again to Stravinsky, but then instead reintroduces the opening instrumental melody. So something that should go somewhere can go somewhere else, right? Gentle Giant, again, demonstrating a kind of flexibility of approach, of possibility, of ways of thinking, of ways of finding one's way through. This is the art of transition that navigates multiple stylistic registers, historical eras, textures, and timbres. But one thing's for sure, you're not going to dance to this. And you aren't likely to think of it as background music to a party or something else. This is a song that, despite its considerable charms, resists becoming musical wallpaper. I think you can say something very similar about the last tune I want to talk about for a little bit, and that's Supper's Ready from the Foxtrot album by Genesis. In my mind, this is another of the great achievements of progressive rock of the early 70s. This particular album was released in 1972, and Supper's Ready is the last track on it. It's the culminating moment. It consists of a bunch of, of semi-discreet parts, songs that might seem like songs in their own right that then get put together uh, in, in these uh, sort of strange transitions from one to the other. Again, this idea of prog rock as the, um, the art of transition. It consists of seven individual parts that were supposedly recorded separately. It wasn't recorded as, as one long suite. And yet, through the studio, they connect them up quite well, and there are various melodic and motivic and uh, harmonic uh, connections among them. In fact, the end of the sixth part is a reprise of, of part of the, um, the first part of Lover's Leap, the opening section of the song. And then the um, entirety of the last section uh, seven, section seven, which is titled As Sure as Eggs is Eggs, is really a reprise or a reworking of the second part of the suite, uh, The Guaranteed Eternal Sanctuary Man. I'm not going to pretend to know what it's about lyrically. Supposedly it was uh, some kind of uh, domestic experience involving a, uh, a, a drug uh, that, a trip that his, his wife took and needed reassurance from. There are certainly domestic elements to the song, right? With your guardian, uh, hey babe, with your guardian eyes so true, don't you know our love is true, right? Uh, your guardian eyes so blue, don't you know our love is true? 
So there's this element of domesticity of a, of a marriage and the very notion of supper's ready, right, is a sort of reassuring uh, element of the ongoing nature of, of one's marital relationship. But then there are allusions to apocalypse, allusions to uh, farmers and flowers and, uh, and Winston Churchill and a whole host of, of strange references. But the thing that's interesting about it for our purposes is the way in which the music connects. The bits of the opening, especially those opening two sections, don't just show up at the end as a kind of bookend, as a kind of framing device, but they infiltrate throughout. And the way that certain chord progressions, like for instance the F major to a, a D sus4, and then sometimes to, to a, a D triad, that shows up in a few different spots. And uh, there, there are several progressions that appear, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in, in non-obvious ways. Also, the, the manner in which they deal with the various meters. So for instance, there's a section called Apocalypse in 9-8, which uh, is obviously in 9-8. And yet, uh, Steve Hackett, the guitar player, constantly super Imposes a pretty standard 4 4 above that 9 8, and you just keep at it long enough until it comes into uh, sync again, right? So, there are all these ways in which the band is working with complexity and making it a, a kind of concerted attempt to create coherence out of all this disparateness. Well, what does that sound like if not creating a world? What is a world if not a kind of coherence made out of disparate things, a, a unity that derives from multiplicity? And prog rock not only does this, because we can say that a lot of music does this in various ways, but it does it in such a way that it broadcasts it, that it makes sure that you know that it's doing it. And so you can understand the resistance of someone like Lester Bangs, who's going to think that this is all a kind of uh, trashy uh, way of, of, of befoulment, as he puts it, of the gutter pure. But there's a dream at work here. It's not surprising that so much prog rock deals with fantasies and mythologies and dreams, because there's a kind of constructedness uh, at work that we're supposed to make sure we're aware of. It's not surprising, therefore, that there's a futuristic element to prog rock, that the progressive element is this openness to imagination, an openness to a sense in which we are meant to complete the work that they initiated. We're meant to continue the thinking initiated by their aesthetic idea. episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoy what you heard. If you'd like more information about this podcast, including uh, reading sources for today's episode, please visit my website, chadwickjenkins.com, or feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail, cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hope to hear from you soon.